The beauty and the challenge of expository preaching is that you don't get to pick and choose what topics you cover. When you're preaching through a book of the Bible and something unique comes forward, something challenging, something that's maybe culturally opposed, we have to deal with it. And I think that's good for us as the church. I think it's good for us as the people of God to consider what it is that God has said and why, if at all, it may make us uncomfortable. Maybe because of how it presses against, again, the cultural norms around us. Maybe because of how it presses against our own desires to make sure that our desires are aligned with God's desires. Today we encounter such a passage, a passage that many people would want to pass over because of the controversy surrounding it, but one that we cannot pass over because of our convictions to preach all of God's Word. And as we approach this passage, I want to remind us of some convictions that we share as the people of God, some convictions that we should share as followers of Christ that will guide us and our posture as we think about what Paul is teaching in First Timothy chapter 2. Here are these convictions that I want us to hold to this morning. Firstly, God is good. Do you believe that? He is good. He's good at all times. He's good in ways that we cannot even imagine. He is inherently and entirely good. That is essential to who He is as God. Secondly, His Word is good and it's inspired. God is good and what He has spoken to us about Himself and His expectations of us as His people is good for us as well. And because it is good and because it is inspired, thirdly, the Word of God is authoritative. It is the final authority for who we are to be as a people and how we are to function as the people of God. And these convictions, certainly these, possibly more, but certainly these convictions are meant to guide us and help us when we approach difficult passage like we, passages like we find in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 15. In this passage, our passage for today, we find Paul challenging some divisive worship practices. There are things that the men in Ephesus are doing, and there are some things that the women in Ephesus are doing that are not helpful to the people of God. And it's specifically what Paul has said to the women in 1 Timothy 2, 8 to 15, that has become in some circles very controversial. In fact, even in the Southern Baptist Convention over the past couple of months, there's been an ongoing conversation about how we are to actually apply what Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 15, whether or not it was strictly cultural or whether or not the thrust of what Paul has written and has authoritatively taught continues to have an impact and effect upon the Word of God today. I think we have to admit, at least in part, that the tension we feel because of what is taught in 1 Timothy 2, 8-15 is a tension that results from competing claims. What our culture says is right and good, and what God has said is right and good. And we always as a people need to be struggling and wrestling when we come against claims of God's Word as to why 
They may hit us in a weird or different way. And whether we truly believe that what God has said is good and what he said is right for us. The challenge for us as men and women in the church is to behave in the household of God in a manner that honors him. We are called to be a set-apart people. We are called to be a holy and distinct people. And there are times where what God asks of us as the people of God is going to run contrary to what our culture says we should be. And we have to decide whether or not in those moments we're going to be okay with being a set-apart people, holy unto God, trusting that when we abide by his commands, when we abide by what he has said is good, he will pour out blessing upon us as a people, and he will give favor to us as we seek to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. As God's people, when we gather to honor him, our desire at all times should be to make sure that we are honoring him in every way possible that we as his people are functioning as his people in a way that is in accordance with what he has said and that glorifies him. Here's the question I want us to wrestle with this morning, both men and women. Are we willing to gather as God's people in such a way that we promote Christ above everything else? That our behavior, the roles we embrace, the way that we exercise our gifts in the church seeks to promote Christ above all? Or is there a piece of your desire to gather with God's people that is really more concerned about your own agenda and promoting yourself rather than Jesus? Here's our main point. As God's people, our objective at all times, especially in gathering together though, is to promote the glory of Christ, to make much of him, not of ourselves. And when we choose to make much of ourselves more than we make much of him, we are becoming dangerously divisive. Dangerously divisive to the people of God. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 15. Let's read the word of God together this morning. First of all, it's last week, verse 8 this week. <laughs> I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger, are quarreling. And remember, we're continuing Paul's declaration to the church about how they should pray last week, about who they should pray for and what they should pray for. He's continuing that teaching about how to pray in the people of God by addressing the men. And I desire that in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair, and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with that is proper for women who profess godliness. You should adorn yourself with good works. Verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So some easy reading for us this morning. <laughs> Y'all uh, may want to say a prayer for me as we engage in this passage. So we are in the portion of the book where Paul is instructing Timothy about how the people of God should behave in the household of God. And remember, that's 
part of the two reasons that Paul is writing to Timothy to firstly counteract the false teaching that's been present in Ephesus, to address that, to promote the gospel. But secondly, as we see in chapter 3, verse 15, to teach the people of God in Ephesus how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. How we behave in the household of God reinforces the veracity, the truthfulness of God's word, because it evidences how much we believe it, how good it is, not only for us, but for all the people who are around us watching us. And so Paul is charging Timothy to deal with this divisive behavior by both men and women because it is not appropriate or helpful to the mission of the household of God. And remember, he is addressing both men and women, okay? So let's start with the men. Paul begins by addressing divisive men. He offers a charge to these divisive men in verse 8. I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger, without quarreling. There are some men in this church who are apparently angry with one another and are actively quarreling. When they see each other at the coffee bar, they're yelling at each other, talking to each other behind each other's backs. They won't shake each other's hands when they walk in the door if they're a part of the greeting team. And then at the very same time, when they gather into worship, they are lifting hands and praying as if nothing is wrong. And Paul says, there's something wrong with that. You're not acting, men, these men, in a way that is appropriate for the household of God. Your prayers are ineffective. Your worship needs correcting because you are not praying, you are not worshiping with the right hearts. You need to be concerned, as we saw last week, not only with who to pray for and what to pray for, but the manner in which you pray. And your heart matters when you gather in worship. Your posture before the Lord and your posture before your fellow brother and sister in Christ matters when you gather to pray and glorify God. You may be praying for the gospel, using your words, but you are not living the gospel. And the heart of prayer matters more than the behavior in prayer. Remember, The challenge from God to God's people in Hosea 6.6, I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. I, I care less about your ritualistic behavior if there's not a heart, a true heart, that desires to honor and glorify me, driving it. And it is clear to me that the way that you are treating one another evidences that the gospel is not truly taken root in your heart. Because if it were you would be willing to put these quarrels aside. You would be willing to forgive because of the way that I've forgiven you. How can you sincerely pray for the gospel to go forward and to change lives when you have not embraced the fullness of the gospel yourself? How can you glorify God for his forgiveness that he has given to you in Jesus Christ when you yourself are not willing to offer that same forgiveness to your brother or sister in the faith? How can you pray for the peace of God when you are not living in peace yourself? Men, you're not setting the example, Paul says. 
You're not embracing your role within the household of God. Now, is it possible that women also could be quarreling and angry with one another as they're lifting hands? Yes, it's possible. But there was something specific about the church in Ephesus where the men were doing this, and Paul felt it inspired by the Spirit to address the men in this specific regard in such a way that the address carries over to us today so that we as men consider that there's something about us and the role that God has given to us that makes it very important for us to live at peace with one another and promote purity in the church. That we have a leadership role in the church as men to promote the gospel, to set the example, to set the tone. And Paul says you are not pursuing holiness. You are not pursuing, pursuing set-apartness. Where is the humility of Christ in your leadership in the household of God? Where is your genuine desire for the good of God's people over your own good? Are you truly lifting holy hands? Men, are you walking in purity? Are you living at peace with your brothers and sisters? Because this is my expectation. This is God's expectation for the household of God, and you are to lead out in that. Remember, when you gather together, the goal is to exalt Jesus, not to be right in an argument, not to prove that you're better than your brother. What quarrel can we not put away for the sake of exalting Jesus? Is there anything that could be greater than our commitment to preserving and protecting the unity of this body? Men of the church, we must not abandon our God-given responsibilities to set the tone for both our individual households and the household of God. While it is true that not every man is called to an official office in the church, all of us, all of us men should be seeking to walk in purity and at peace with one another for the glory of God. And I'm grateful that in a church like this, we have a lot of godly men who desire to honor the Lord with their lives, who have not abdicated their authority entrusted to them by God, but want to lead their households well and want to serve the Lord with every fiber of their being. There's a lot of churches who couldn't say that. But we need to be more resolved as a church to make sure that godly men are rising up to set the tone for how we are going to, as the household of God, honor him in all things. We should work zealously to protect the unity of this body, even as we would protect the unity of our home. We should work zealously to promote the work of Christ and every avenue of ministry in our church so that he is exalted and glorified at all times. We are to be about that. We are to set the example of what it means to submit to the Lordship of Christ. We should be servant leaders for the glory of God. And then after addressing the men, their failures, their divisiveness, Paul then begins to speak to the women. He offers a charge to divisive women in the same way he offers a charge to divisive men. And while it seems that men were consumed with anger, the women were consumed with attention and authority. Attention and authority. 
And their behavior, according to Paul, has the potential to be equally, if not more so, destructive to the church. They are being divisive in their dress. We see that in verses 9 and 10. And they're also being destructive, divisive, and their desire, to, their desire to have authority that is not being given to them by God within the household of God. So let's deal with these charges one at a time, okay? Firstly, Paul says that women are being divisive in the way that they dress. Look at verses 9 and 10. Likewise, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness to adorn yourself with good works. Women, it seems, were dressing in an attention-seeking way. They were wearing very expensive jewelry, spending their money on their hair and clothing in order to draw attention to their wealth, or some even drawing attention to their bodies to be sexually provocative in the way that they dress. Paul says to these women, you are not the focus of this gathering. We have not gathered to marvel at your wealth or your beauty. We have gathered as God's people to marvel at Christ's riches and his beauty. And anything that you do to distract the people of God from that focus is divisive and dangerous to the church. The challenge, Paul says, is to dress in a modest manner, in a way that is culturally appropriate, not meant to draw attention to yourself. And let me say, is it possible for men to do this as well? Yes, but again, there was something about the practice and behavior at this church and in most churches where Paul felt the need to specifically address the women. But there's something about our fallenness, where this is a particular issue for women. So Paul says, be careful. Be careful that you dress in a way that focuses the attention on the Lord and not yourself. And this is good for you, by the way. It's good for you and it's good for the church for you to dress in a godly, appropriate manner. It's good for your heart to remember why it is that you're coming to church. Not to be gawked at, not to be looked at, but to promote Jesus. It's good for the men around you so they are not distracted. It's good for the other women around you so they don't feel inferior or they don't begin to covet or they don't begin to compare themselves to you and not to Jesus. It's good for those around you who don't have as much as you do. So you don't make them feel inferior when they can't, when they can't dress to the level that you have dressed. And so they don't come to church because they feel like they can't keep up with the other people who are around them. What is it that is your goal? when you're getting dressed in the morning. How we present ourselves, and this is true of all of us, not just women, but all of us. How we present ourselves matters. How we present ourselves in our dress matters. And are we being a steward of the clothing in our bodies that God has given to us to point people to Christ and not ourselves? Secondly, Paul says... Women are being divisive in their desire for authority within the church. They're not clothing themselves with good works. They're clothing themselves with a desire 
to take a work that has not been given to them. And we see this in verses 11 to 15. Now, before we read this again, I want you to look at your neighbor and I want you to say it's going to be okay. And I want you to remind each other that God is still good. Okay? All right. Verse 11 to 15. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. <laughs> I do not permit a woman. <laughs> Don't get the church giggles. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and self-control. All right. Paul argues that women who seek authority in the church, in the household of God, when they seek to have authority over the household of God, specifically in the teaching of God's people, they have gone against their design or they have gone against God's design for male and female roles. They have gone against God's design. Paul says, I do not permit. That's strong language. It's very hard to get around the clear apostolic prohibition that Paul has placed here. I do not permit. And in the language of the New Testament, the idea is, I'm not allowing you to get what you desire because it is not what God desires. You desire something that is not of God. And because of that, I will not let you have it for your good and for the glory of God. I do not give you permission. And I do this as an apostle of Jesus Christ himself. Notice, the argument is not rooted in Paul's preference. It's rooted in creation. Verse 13, I don't permit this because, for, Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was given a headship over Eve. Eve was formed to help Adam and to submit to his leadership. We see this outline in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. Adam names her. He's given authority over Eve. Now, both are equal and they're image-bearing before God. Both are equally loved by God. But both are created to function differently in the genders and roles in which God created them. There are specific things that men are created and called to do. And there are specific things that women are called and created to do. Some of those things we do together, some of those things are independent. There are some things that, women, that men are created and called to do that women are not called and created to do. And there are some things that women are called and created to do that men are not called and created to do. The design, though, is that when we complement each other, when we come together embracing the roles that God has given to us, then there's a unique way that we glorify him and honoring him in that complementarianism. And we see this specifically in the family, right? And the way that, that God has designed the family and the teaching about the family throughout the Scripture. In Ephesians 5, for instance, Paul echoes the design of man and woman in creation to talk about how husbands and wives are to relate to each other in their homes. Husbands are to lead their wives. There's an authority there, but they're to lead their wives in a sacrificial and loving way as Christ loves the church. It's an authority, but it's a self-sacrificing authority. Servant leadership. And women, wives, are to submit to their husbands and respect them as the church has responded and submits to Christ. 
The household of God is meant to reflect this design. Not exactly, but certainly within the roles. The household of God is meant to reflect the design for the home. We are the family of God. And as a family, we are to function within the design and the roles given to us from God. Now, let's, let's make a very clear statement here. Not all men have been called to lead in the church the way that you are called to lead in your home. We'll see this in 1 Timothy 3. Spiritual, qualified men set apart by the church are given this authority in the church. And all women and all other men, by the way, are called to submit to that leadership. The Lord has given spiritual fathers, spiritual leaders to the church, and we're grateful for that. But it doesn't mean that men aren't called to lead in the church. It just means they're not called to lead with authority in the same way they're called to lead in their house. All of them, certain spiritual qualified men are called to do that. And women are not called to submit to every man, by the way, outside the church or inside the church, but rather submitting to the authority that God has entrusted to certain men as they would submit to the authority that God has given to their husbands in their home. And this is what Paul means here in verses 11 and 12 when he says that women are to be quiet. Not that women can't talk at all, right? That'd be foolish. But that women should be at peace and willing to submit to the God-given authorities that have been placed over her as the church, the elders of the church, and grateful for the provision that God has given to the church. And that's true of other men as well who are not, again, in that role. And then Paul offers a warning about what happens when this natural order is violated in verse 14. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. When women embrace an unnatural authority, when they seek a, an authority that, is not, that God has not given to them, and secondarily, when men abdicate their authority, when men are not embracing the role that God has given to them, the fall happens. Destruction happens because it is not in accordance with the design of God and he will not honor it. Let me also say this. Again, from Scripture, which is good. A woman's desire to have authority over her husband is a direct result of the fall. In Genesis chapter 3, after the fall, when, when God is delivering the curse, here's what he says as a warning to the woman as she is to consider the effect of the fall upon her life. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, thanks. In pain you shall bring forth children, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. From the beginning, we see then that there's going to be something about the fall, some of the nature of sin in the lives of women that is going to try to overcome established authority by God. But, ladies, when you embrace your role as a woman, as we see in verse 15, you are protected from the work of the enemy. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, with self-control. Now, Jared, what on earth does that mean? If, are we talking about 
Jesus kind of salvation here? If I don't have kids, like, does that mean I'm not getting to heaven? Like, what is it that Paul's talking about here? Well, the, the literary device that he's employing here is called a synecdoche. I never thought my English literature degree would come in handy in preaching, but here it is. Synecdoche. It's a literary device where the part signifies the whole. Okay, so childbearing here is being used by Paul to suggest the entirety of what it means to be a woman, the entirety of what it means to function within the design of the role that God has given to women. And what he's saying is that you will be protected. The word here could also be translated protected in the language of the New Testament. Not that you'll be saved in the same way that Jesus saves you, because only he saves you in that way, but you can be protected from the work of the enemy from the the work of sin in your heart when you fully embrace the role that God has given to you. It's when you try to get outside of that role, when you try to get outside of the parameters that God has established, that danger sets in both for yourself, both for your family, and for the church. So, the natural question that follows from all this is, what is appropriate for women? specifically as it regards to teaching, because that seems to be where the controversy is constantly tied. Now let me just remind us, we're talking about within the household of God. This morning, we are not talking about the role of women in every single sector of life. We're not talking about whether or not a woman can be president. We're not talking about whether a woman can be CEO. That's a conversation for another day. Whether they can work outside the home. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the functional roles of men and women within the household of God and what is appropriate for the gathered people of God. So what is appropriate in terms of a woman exercising her gift of teaching? Let me make a couple of comments here. Firstly, what is clear? It is clear that the authority in the church, that authority in the church has been entrusted to qualified men qualified spiritual men. We'll see this more in 1 Timothy 3. It's clear that the role of pastor and elder in the church should be reserved for men based on creation and the teaching of Scripture, such that the rest of the church, both men and women, submit to the leadership of these pastor and elders and to the authoritative teaching of the pastor and elders that have been set over them, so long as it's in accordance with Scripture. Because, again, Scripture is our ultimate authority. So if there's ever a pastor and elder who gets up here and says something that is not in accordance with Scripture, then we all have the right and we all have the job and responsibility to make sure that they correct themselves or that they are removed from that position because they are no longer worthy of it. They're not submitting to the greater authority, which is the responsibility of every pastor and elder. So I want to be very clear here. Authoritative teaching from the pulpit on Sunday mornings at this church will be reserved to men. Because I think Scripture is very clear about that. I don't think there's a really easy way to get around what God has explicitly said there. It should be reserved for qualified men. That specific ministry of the word to the church. We will never have a woman preach from this pulpit. Now, does that mean that a woman will never be on the stage? Of course not. There are are opportunities for women, of course. But when we are gathered for corporate worship, we believe, we are convinced that that role by God's design is meant for men. So, 
What can women do if that is prohibited? I think there's three very clear examples in Scripture of women being able to use their teaching gift that we want to promote. And here's what I want us to say. I want us to all come together around this common conviction. And I'll just make this commitment to you as a pastor, one of the elders and pastors of this church. Our goal is to be biblical, of course, while also elevating as much as is possible the giftedness, talents, and abilities of women. Okay? I don't want to always talk about what women can't do. I want to focus more often than not on what women can do and the necessity of women for the good of the church. Okay? So this is our balance. This is what we're trying to commit to. We want to be biblical. We want to embrace the roles God has given to us. But we also want to fan into flame the giftedness that has been entrusted to women just within the role. Okay? So it's clear that women have a unique role in the work of discipleship in the home the work of discipleship to the next generation of believers, specifically as it applies to children. While the husband is ultimately responsible for the spiritual condition of the home, there's no doubt that moms have a unique impact, effect on the spiritual lives of their children. I think all of us in here who had godly moms and godly grandmothers would testify to that. My mom was an incredible influence on me when I was growing up as a spiritual uh, guide for me and my journey. And we see this truth evidence in the life of Timothy himself, right? When Peter, when Paul, when Paul is encouraging Timothy to not ignore the good deposit that was entrusted to him or not to abandon it, the deposit, he said, was put there by the Spirit's work, of course, but also his mother and his grandmother, right? It's Lois and Eunice who are encouraged or who, who Paul acknowledges uh, as being a spiritual guide for Timothy, of teaching him the truth of God's word. And we believe that this, this setting in the home, this responsibility in the home, translates to the household of God as well. There's no reason why that women in this congregation can't teach with conviction and, and guide the next generation of believers who are coming through our church. We've got a lot of preschool kids down there, right, that need to not just be rocked and not just be bounced on your knee, but to be entrusted with the Word of God, to be prayed over, to be sung over, to be taught the stories of the Bible. A lot of children who meet on the second floor every Sunday who need godly men and women to, to shape them and to teach them diligently the truth of God's word. The same thing is true with our students. There's no reason why we can't bring what's been entrusted to the women in the house to the household of God and do that in a way that honors him. Secondly, women are called to help disciple other women. We see this in Titus chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. This is also Paul writing to another son in the faith, Titus. Older women could be older in age or older in the faith. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. And that's the goal, right? The word of God may not be reviled. We need godly women who can rightly divide the word of God who understand how to read the Scripture, who understand how to apply the Scripture to our lives, who, who spend time before the Lord in prayer, asking the Holy Spirit to renew their minds so that they can encourage and teach younger women in the faith. 
What incredible blessing and opportunity that women have to invest in other women. Thirdly, women are also called to help those who have an insufficient understanding of the gospel in the right context. We see Priscilla and Aquila in Acts chapter 18, verse 26, a married couple instructing Apollos, a man, together about his insufficient understanding of the work of Christ. In this text, we have a woman alongside her husband discipling a man who was younger in the faith. And so it's possible in the right context for a woman, Priscilla in this case, to have a spiritual impact on the life of a man. The question, though, becomes now, what's appropriate with, within these two bookends, right? If, if this moment is reserved to men, and we have these explicitly clear options on the other side of the pendulum swing, what is okay between? What do we do about our ABFs? What do we do about conferences? What do we do about seminary classes? So there's confusion between those two bookends. And here's what I'm just going to say to you today. I don't have the full answer. I don't have the full answer for how we're going to implement the teaching of this scripture within our church fully yet. Here's what I commit to you. Myself, the pastors, the elders, in consultation with you as the members of this body, we're going to seek the Lord. We're going we're gonna to seek to try to be as biblically faithful as we can be while also promoting the giftedness and talents of the women in our church within the role that God has given to them. Let me just make this explicitly clear this morning. We need women in the church. We need women in the church because we're a family, and families don't work really well if there's no female presence in them. Can I just say this quickly? My home would be terrible if Jordan wasn't a part of it. This would be. I'd be a, a worse, I wouldn't be a husband, clearly. I'd be a worse follower of Christ and my kids would suffer if Jordan was not a part of that. And not just a, a background piece, but an integral piece to what it is that we are doing in our home. And if that is true in my home, do you think it's also, do you think it's not true in the household of God? Of course. As families, we need both. The point is not one over the other. The point is complement. The point is together. We need godly women in the church. We need godly mothers in the church. Even if you're not a mother of your own children. We need that godly mothering in the church for the sake of the spiritual health of this body. There's a lot that women can do. A lot of places that women can teach and a lot they can add to the, the, the ministry of the church that goes beyond teaching. Do you know that women can pray? <laughs> in fact, there are some women in this body who I'd have pray over me more than a man any day of the week. Prayer warriors. They can pray in this service. Women can read scripture. Women can give testimony. A couple months back, we had a very godly woman, Vanita, come up here and share her testimony with us, and it encouraged all of us. There's no reason why that can't happen. Women can sing. Women can nurture. Women can utilize their gifts and talents for the glory of God and the good of the church because we need all of us to make this ministry work in appropriate roles. So we're going to strive within that balance, to be biblically faithful, but also promoting and fanning into flame the gifts and talents of the women whom God has entrusted to us as a church. 
Let me also challenge us in this way. It's very important for us to be gracious with each other as we walk this road and gracious with others who disagree with us. Right? While it's very clear, I think, what the bookends are, there's been a lot of unhealthy dialogue between those bookends happening on Twitter, on blogs, in a way that is not honoring to God. Let's be careful how we speak of others who may disagree with us on things that are interpretive matters, right? That, that we're going to come to. Listen, as elders and pastors, we're going to sit. We're going to wrestle with this scripture. We're going to figure out how to best apply it to the whole of our church so that our ministry is reflecting the design of God and also promoting women. And we're going to sit before the Lord giving account to how we apply that at this church. But there are other pastors and other elders who have been entrusted with other churches. So it's not good to say, well, they let this, they, they allow women to do this over there. Why don't we allow that to do? Well, God didn't entrust us with that church. He entrusted them with that church. He's entrusted us with this church to lead this church. And we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna strive together to make sure that we honor him every possible way. And that's also why, by the way, it's good that it's not just me making the decisions. That's a group of us together sitting before the Lord, asking him to be very clear with how we are to lead here. Our goal is to exalt Jesus, to promote the word of God as good, to recognize that what he has said is the best option for us, trusting that when we live in alignment with what God has spoken that's where we will find blessing and joy. And when we rebel against that, that's when we will find heartache, bitterness, and disappointment. And so we want, as men and women, as the household of God, to be sure that we are behaving in a way that honors him, that glorifies him, that upholds the truth of God's word, that supports it and proclaims it for his glory. So how can we respond this morning? We seek to exalt Christ in our worship in our church. Men, let me address you first. Seek to maintain the peace and unity of this body by being gracious to each other. Doesn't mean we don't advocate for truth. Doesn't mean that we don't uphold the, the truth of God's word. It just means that we're gracious to each other. Don't abuse the authority given to you or the role given to you and fight with one another over stupid stuff. It's not worthy of the household of God. Let's forgive. Let's be gracious. Let's be a people of purity and peace. Women, seek to maintain the focus on Jesus, dressing modestly and willingly submitting to the authority that God has placed. And if you resist that claim, I just press you today to consider why. What is it that you're, you think you're going to miss if you don't embrace God's design? There's a whole lot that you can do for the glory of God. And then as a household of God, as we journey together to figure out the full in fact, implications 
of this text in our church. I want us to commit to pray together. To constantly put our practices, our organization before the Lord so that we honor him. And if there's something that we're doing that's not good or something we're not doing that that would be good, that we would embrace it in order to make this household more faithful to the Lord. Let's reason together under the authority of God's word. Let's be challenged by the word of God, not just trusting what someone has told us about this particular passage or other passages, not what someone has just written online. Let's sit in the word of God and together wrestle with what the word of God says in a way that's gracious and loving toward one another and not just wants to destroy the other person. That's not what we're about here. And let's learn together, right? Not that we've already attained all this, but we press forward, just as Paul did, being shaped and fashioned into a a more faithful people for his glory. Wherever you are, do you bow your head? Spend some time thinking about how to respond Let me begin by saying this morning that you can't promote unity in the household of God if you're not a part of it. And the only way to be a part of this household, the only way to honor the Lord with your life is to first submit to the Lordship of Christ. And if you've never given your life to Jesus, if you've never made him the the Savior and Lord of your life, then I would just encourage you today to, to consider what God has done for you. Because when we're overwhelmed by God's love for us, when we're overwhelmed by God's work on our behalf, obedience comes, flows naturally for people who have been transformed by the truth of God's word, the work of Jesus. If you've never given your life to Christ, just a minute, we'll have some pastors and ministers here in the front. We'd love to speak with you more about who Jesus is, what he's done for you, and why he's worthy of being the Lord of your life. For the rest of us, are we fully embracing the Lordship of Christ? By forgiving each other, setting the example, men embracing the role of leadership God's given you in your home, setting the tone for worship when we gather together, some embracing the authority that God has entrusted as a pastor and elder, not quarreling, not lifting hands in an impure way. If you've done that, I'll just ask you to repent today. Ladies, how are you doing with the way you dress? Whose eyes do you want, or who do you want the eyes of this church to, to be upon when we gather to worship? You or Jesus? And are you seeking to embrace a role that God has not entrusted to you while ignoring the beauty and the blessing of the role that he has given to you? Father, would you help us? God, we want to honor you. We want to be faithful to you. We want to to promote our sisters in the faith. We want them to, to serve with delight, with joy and gladness. We also want to be faithful to embrace the roles that you've given to us. 
Father, help us. Even when it's difficult, even when culture says that what we're doing is not good, help us to trust what you say more. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. You stand and respond as the Lord leads.